hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the stupid answer. Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mundus. <laughs> <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chit spot. <laughs> oh, right. Hello, and welcome to episode 401 of the Stupid Cancer Show. We are the voice of young adult cancer. Coming to you from downtown Manhattan, I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 20-year young adult brain cancer survivor. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org. This is Laurel Sally sitting in for Mallory Rivera. I'd like to welcome all of our first-time and returning listeners. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. Sucks, huh? We change the world one chemo infusion at a time. On this episode, from cancer professional to cancer patient, despite Marlon Esch's professional experience, as an oncology nurse, navigating her own breast cancer diagnosis at 29 was mystifying and lonely. Marla joins us to discuss the transition from nurse to patient getting treated by coworkers and how she is continually looking for ways to support survivors like her. And our Survivor Spotlight in-studio guest, two-time cancer survivor and aspiring scientist, Jay Gazden. Hello. Episode 401. Hello, Laurel. Hello, Matthew. We are Mallory-less. Uh, we are recording this on an off date. We are. Well, because of the fabulous weekend that was. OMG exactly. West. The West Coast Regional Conference of Stupid Cancer took place in Orange County at UC Irvine campus. We had 125 people show up for a full day of amazing support, community and to your point, a movement <laughs> got a little vitamin B shot. Love it. Yes, I was not there, and I was looking at all of the pictures, and I think you tweeted out about FOMO, and I was having serious <laughs> FOMO. It was just Noel and I in the office. Yeah. The rest of the team was out west, and we were just getting all of the pictures from social and looking at what everybody was talking about, and everybody was just saying, like, one person we uh, – 
put it out on Facebook yesterday. They were calling Omji West like something like their Garden of Eden. Wow. As soon as they got there, they just felt this sense of calmness come over them. And they posted a bunch of pictures about it. And I think just seeing that, Noel and I are sitting here in New York being like, <laughs> we would like to be out there, please. Yeah. How, so the hashtag was Omji West. How did you see it uh, doing? It was doing so well. I think just the more we're talking about it and the more we're sharing stories, the more people are sharing their stories. And I think it just takes this bravery that I think other people maybe outside of the community wouldn't understand to share their stories on social media. And so I just think the more and more people are doing it, it's this real sense of community and camaraderie and and feeling that there is this strength and solidarity. There is this strength in recognizing other people are sharing their stories. And so I can feel comfortable enough to share mine as well. And I love seeing that and I love watching it happen. I um, uh, was so inspired by Emily McDowell. Oh, my god! Who gosh. was actually on this show a year ago. So you can yes. search the archi- archives of the Stupid Cancer Show, Emily mm-hmm. McDowell. Emily is a young adult survivor diagnosed uh, a couple of years ago, went into the uh, greeting card business because there was nothing out there that made her feel that she could talk to her friends or tell her friends how to feel and think. Right. And this concept of the empathy card disrupting Hallmark was born cards like there's no good card for this i'm truly sorry i think one of my favorites was um uh don't tell me something about the you know don't tell me that this is god's plan or something or if this is god's plan it sucks like no offense god if you're reading this you did a great job with other things like pandas and waterfalls yes and i loved that going through her website is just I mean, it it makes you laugh. And I think, though, the feedback that we were getting on social was that everybody was saying, like, oh, my goodness, yes, this is exactly how I felt. You know, all of these cards you're getting, people were like, you know, you get these cards and it's as if you're almost already dead. And you're like, this is not what I want to be getting right now. I do not want this. It's like, please don't tell me you found a cure on the Internet. Yes. (laughs) Those cards. Yes. So Emily McDowell Studios, you can go to, I think it's Mm emilymcdowellstudios.com. They've sold a million cards online in the last year. Wow. And she's launching a book, which Mm -hmm. is coming out in the spring, which we're allowed to talk about. There's no embargo. We're very excited about that. And uh, again, like we had an East versus West, a holistic and allopathic medicine, and there was a taking care of yourself. It was really well done. The after party at um, uh, Dave and Buster's was fantastic. There was like ski ball competitions. I saw and some fun teeth pictures. I think were... our community takeover, Stephen, ended up when he signed off of Stupid Cancers. I think he posted on his own uh, Instagram account. And there were all these like fun teeth that they won, I guess, yeah. after at Dave and Buster's. Yeah, we'll be posting photos once we get all the archives back from both East and West yes. on our Smug Mug channel. For those of us out there who knows what Smug Mug is, <laughs> but it's our version you. of Flickr. I'm, I'm the kidding. only one that knows what Smug Mug is. That is true. <laughs> um, we had some really interesting social posts going on. Why don't you tell us about those? We did. We had one coming out actually of Australia, and it was talking about um, life interrupted and, and survivorship. And I think it's interesting because our community, so often we talk about here in America, but our community is also outside of America. We have an international presence and an international community. And I think it was really interesting. I think every time we post something that has this international perspective, it's so interesting to me because even though these borders make it look like we're so far apart the same concerns about survivorship the same 
quest for this quality of life and this sense of wondering what it feels like after and and all of that, this sense of survivorship is the same. It's unbound by these regional borders. It's It really is this movement. And, and no matter where you are, um, when you are in your 20s, when you are in your 30s, when you are living with that in your 40s, 50s, whatever it may be, you, when you are a young adult and you have been affected by cancer, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. I think even more than it being something about survivorship and it being talking about, you know, fertility and and all of the issues that come with survivorship being a young adult. um, More than that, I think it was just interesting to see that everybody has that shared experience. You know, there is a common thread. Yeah, the universality of not being 80. Exactly, exactly. And that that is, it's not just something felt in America or Canada, but it can be felt past that, you know, past North America, in Europe, in Australia, you know, in in, in Latin America and other areas in the world. And it's felt that this exact same way. Right. And there was another post, a really great post about the Olympic swimmer who destroyed Instagram for all the right reasons. Yes. And again, I think he was, I think he was Australian. I believe he was again. Look at my internet. You're trolling global. I like their accent. Um, He, in one of his victory photos, he had this uh, freckle or spot on his chest. Mm -hmm. And a fan pointed it out to him to say, you know, go get this checked out. And um, he did. And he posted on Instagram afterwards, like, thank you for saying that. Great idea. And it turned out to be uh, skin cancer. And I think, one, um, just you have to be aware and to kind of look at what's happening with your body. And that's come up again in a lot of our other social posts, but also I think just the power of social media too, that you can post this picture that has nothing to do with that. And that you do have this community that's looking out for you or who are looking out for you. Um, And so both of those aspects were kind of at play in that post and it just got some great engagement. I think other people saying, oh my gosh, yeah, somebody else pointed that out to me too. Right. Or I didn't think anything of this until my friend was mentioning that. Um, and I think that that support system that it's really interesting that support system is almost in place before there's an actual diagnosis. Well, again, it goes back to, you know, like what I just went through. Like I had this weird thing on my head. And right. was like, that looks really weird. Mm-hmm. And I would never have thought to do anything about it. And then, yeah, like, it's such a fascinating story that hey, he was willing to listen, right, to that person, did something about it. And I has think a great actually the, to tell. the person told the swim coach. Oh, really? Yeah, I think he called it out on Instagram and then wrote something to the swim coach saying, and I guess the swim coach kind of passed it down. Well, still, that's still amazing. Still, a, totally amazing. Yeah. And your unicorn scar yeah. that nobody <laughs> can see because we're in studio, also amazing. Well, um, it it thanks you. Okay. <laughs> All right, well, let's hit up our first guest. He is in the studio, and I'm really excited to uh, welcome Jay Gadsden, 26-year-old biotechnology college student studying at Brooklyn Manhattan Community College, conducting cancer research at his school. He is a two-time cancer survivor of an undifferentiated sarcoma. He's got a hell of a story, and he's sitting to my left. Please welcome Jay Gadsden. Hello, Sarah. Hello, hello. We love our in-studio guests because there's nothing quite like eye contact on the radio. It really isn't. It really isn't. Yeah. It adds like a extra bit of authenticity. It and does. like uh, magic. You don't know what's going to happen. I'm glad I had the chance to get to know you a little bit before the show. Yeah. Because your story, I mean, everyone's story, we don't like put them on a pedestal. But your story is quite amazing and quite <laughs> unique. 
And it's it, it, it touches so many points about why what we do is so relevant. Yeah. The least of which is that you were a teen with cancer and now yeah. you're 26. Yeah. So that alone is its own story. Right. Um, the, the other one is what you had cancer you had a recurrence out of the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, you have uh, questionable fertility as a result of your going through this twice. That is correct. You were homeless <laughs> when you were diagnosed at 14 and lived with your dad. Um, just found a home. Like, yeah. Just literally just found like a new apartment and moved in. Yeah. As soon as we moved in, it was like, yeah, so about that back pain I've been having, like, well, let's go get that checked out like right now. <laughs> yeah. So that, that, and which goes to like you had some kind of scrappy internal. Uh, you know, gumption yeah. that that something ain't right with me. We got to get this checked out. And you had this hump, <laughs> literally a well, hump. Yeah, it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to like uh, to not notice there's something wrong where you like come home from school and then you try to go to sleep and then you wake up at like 2 a.m. in the morning screaming in agony and right. like waking up your father and like people in the vicinity of, you know. But again, like, like, yes, that's not, I mean, Technically, you could have just said, "Oh, I'm just 14 and invincible. It's nothing." But no. it was really, really bad. Oh yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah it was. It was. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty bad. You know, especially when you have to start like missing days off school just because it's like right. you get. I get up in the morning. I'm like, oh god, this is, this is dreadful. I'm just gonna try to stay in bed and like not move and not like try to agitate it. So that first visit to that first doctor was he like, oh Jesus. No, the first uh, <laughs> the first <laughs> oh not the things first, you want to hear from a doctor. No, the first visit to the doctor, um uh she she said like, Oh yeah, we see we might think it's like a curvature of your spine. If I look look really closely, it looks like your spine is kinda like curving a little bit and it's right. like Okay. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that wasn't the case because, of course, I got checked out by other doctors. Like, oh well, we think it might just be like a collection of like fatty tissue. You know, you're a big guy, and or you swallowed a watermelon, you swallowed a grapefruit, but you swallowed you... a ball. Didn't you eat a bowling ball last week? What's yes, wrong with actually, you? Yeah. actually, I did. Yeah. yeah, it was a bowling ball yeah, made just of like, cotton candy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like magically terrible coming out of my How back. dare you swallow a bowling ball? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, did they do a biopsy? Was it just Yeah, like, it was a biopsy. And then like, oh, So they did a biopsy to see exactly what it was to kind of confirm or not confirm that it was a collection of fatty tissue. And then after that, I remember uh, they had called my father who was like at work and they're like, tell him they like come to the hospital like right now. I'm like, right. get your son come to the hospital like right, right now. We have to do like yeah. a biopsy like, like immediate of, get over immediate here. like yeah. it doesn't matter like what yeah. you're doing right now grab him and bring it yeah, yeah 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 that's exactly what it was collect, like like jason Bourne style collect your son absolutely yes. like right now and, and come here and, and that's when i got a biopsy and then from there i think i got like a second biopsy like a week later and they knew right away it was an undifferentiated sarcoma oh no oh no oh, that, that took a long time oh no 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 that that's a funny story behind that so the first time i got diagnosed they thought it was um um um, they thought it, what was it? A hewing sarcoma. Oh, okay. And yeah, yeah. That's still bad. Yeah, that's still bad. And he's like, well, even though we're on the radio, I'm a, you know, I'm African-American, I'm black, right? And they're like, well, 99.8% of Caucasians get this, like, sort of uh, cancer that you have. So we might want to reevaluate this and because maybe you have something different. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Either that or more statistical anomaly. So they went back and they kind of compared it to other things and then they were like, well, it could be also be a synovial sarcoma, mm. but it doesn't really have some of these other characteristics. So it kind of went to the point where, like, 
we don't know what you kind of have. So it's an unknown. Yeah. Uh, is undifferentiated, undifferentiated, like, it's not anything, it just is? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was kind of, yeah, it was kind of like that. It was like, we don't really know what this is. We haven't seen Miscellaneous sarcoma. Like yeah. It. yeah, which is kind of cool because, you know, I have my own sort of, yeah. you know, it's cancer. It's Jay's cancer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, yeah, which is kind of like what it was. So you went through... The, the full gamut, surgery, yeah. radiation, chemotherapy. Yeah, I went through surgery. I went through radiation. I went through uh, chemotherapy, had broviacs. I had uh, pick lines, uh, infections just from, you know. Right. Because that's what happens, the whole deal. How long were you in the hospital for? Um, for the first rounds. The first round, I think I was in the hospital for like a month straight. Wow. Like a month straight. And that's just kind of them just giving me medicine and seeing how I kind of respond to it. Were you in a teen unit? Did they have those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then? They have, yeah, yeah. They had like a teen, like they have like a teen floor in like Columbia Presbyterian. Okay. And they have like almost kind of like this ward part and then they have like the regular rooms. It was just like you and another person. Okay. So I was put in a room with like just me and another person, like a little, um, like a little like six year old boy's name was Moon or something like that, and it just so happens he was getting diagnosed as well. Oh, wow! Yeah. So um, you got to ask the question: What's better, being with a six year old or an eighty year old? Uh, either I've, way, it's going to be I've, awkward. I've never, I've never been with an eighty year old. I've only been like with other children. I well, that's good then. Yeah, I would imagine. I don't know. I, it, that's kind of hard to imagine, but I would probably say you're gonna. It's going to be a different experience, right? Because if you're with a child, you know, you're going to have their parents, and sometimes you can see how it's affecting yeah. them emotionally, psychologically, yeah. physically, and right. also with the child versus, like, maybe an 80-year-old, you know, or a 90-year-old who has cancer, who has these other different type of ailments, and maybe the conversation is also different, right? right. It might be a little bit more reflective or something. I remember when I was in the NICU after my brain surgery, the the person in the it wasn't. It was like four people in one room with with the curtain. Right? Yeah, yeah. I and the person next to me was having like this. <gasps> I'll never forget that sound. <laughs> I'll never forget it now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that was the actual sound. Laurel's gonna. Laurel, Laurel is just laughing hysterically. But that was the actual sound that this older gentleman was making while I was recuperating from brain cancer, and it was you know like. I don't know what, what. How horrifying was that for you as you're trying to recuperate? You hear this person, well, and it's also that, like that respirator that looks like an accordion that goes, yeah, <laughs> making like very interesting can sound you, effects on the can air. Can you make that sound one more time? <gasps> <laughs> That's a special sound. Yeah, we need to get that on a loop. No, we don't. So I you, think we do. No. <laughs> Jay, Jay votes yes. So you're going through this. You're going, you're a teenager, blah, blah, blah. Poof. You're sort of out of the woods. You're yeah. getting checked. I'm and getting then all checked. of a sudden, oh, Jesus. Yeah. They found a tiny little nodule in your lung. Yeah. And they realized that it isn't gone. It came back in your lung. Yeah. The same undifferentiated sarcoma. sarcoma. Correct. Only this time you didn't need surgery. They just gave you chemotherapy. Yeah, no. Well, they took it out. They like just when they were gonna go in for a biopsy in a right. lung. They're like so small. The surgeon just said, "Eh, we just might as well just take it out." So they took it out, and then they just hit me with chemotherapy. Did you get the same chemotherapy? Uh, you did when you're 14? No, no. They put me on different drugs. I think they put me on. Um, oh God, this is kind of difficult to remember. Like vincristine and like uh, a phosphamide and something else. In comparison oh. to like doxorubicin and other stuff, I'm like gonna that. guess it was been Christian carboplatin, cisplatin, cyclophosphamide. Yeah, lots of syllables. Yeah, a lot. The more yeah. syllables, the worse for you. Yeah, I think you're you're forgetting one, but you're close, yeah. doctor. You're close. <laughs> Adriamycin. 
No. We'll, we'll figure it out. We'll figure we'll, it out. We'll find your medical records. Yes, exactly. The whole entire huge book. So, so that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but yet you are still here 12 years later. Yeah. You, you went Fortunate. To, you're in college now. Yes. And you were telling me before the show that you're, you want to get into cancer research. Yeah. Talk about that. Uh, well, well, to be completely honest, I, I got into cancer research after like some reflection. I thought it was going to be in business. Like, uh, I thought I would probably get into marketing. I did, like, an internship with CBS and stuff like that. And so I kind of enjoyed that work. I enjoyed, like, the group dynamic and the teamwork. But, like, um, to be completely honest with you, I, like, met a girl there at the same place, uh, Columbia Presbyterian, kind of grew close, and she ended up passing away, right? Uh, yeah, I know. Sorry. It was terrible. Yeah. yeah. And after that, I kind of reevaluated a lot of things and kind of took me some time. And I was like, you know what? Like, let's make some change. Yeah, let's make some change myself, right? If nobody else is, yeah, I mean, not that nobody else is trying to make change. There's a lot of people trying to make change, but. Well, we were talking again also before the show about how there are so many late effects and side effects. There's what we call the consequence of cure, especially when you're a younger person, a teenager, a child, a young adult. And that it it often goes under the radar Mm -hmm. that people are like, well, you're fine, right? You look look great. But meanwhile, there are all these issues that we yeah. face resultant of being no evidence of disease. Yeah, absolutely. Would you, would you comment on where you're at with that? Um, well, for me... Besides being devastatingly handsome as a side effect. <laughs> oh, he's lying to you. <laughs> he's, you're, you're so lucky you can't actually see me and like turn into stone. <laughs> but, um, uh, well, I have basically from the chemotherapy, I basically have like one kidney, like one functioning kidney. Oh, they're overrated. Then. Yeah, there's like a... Yeah, there's like a there's a variety of things, but mostly with the heart, just because of the Dr. Rubinson's, so I have sure. to exercise and that sort of thing. Um, I have to make sure I drink a lot of water. Be, ca- be careful with my skin. Are skin you on uh, like a like a synthroid for hormones? No, I'm not on anything. The only thing I actually take it well, not I just started taking like lisinopril and cardiovascular. Okay, just for like in a little bit to help out my heart a little bit. But other right. than that, I just take like vitamin D supplements, like over the counter. Well, that's the biggest side effect, and in, in- teenage and pediatric cancer is the damage the chemo does to your heart yeah yeah absolutely that, and you, you mentioned you were like like make or break cardiomyopic yeah yeah until i started like exercising and i lost like over 100 pounds yeah. in like a year like a year flat and so i like that worked really hard i worked yeah. i worked extremely hard at it, in fact and it's kind of funny um that you said especially with the uh, cardiovascular problems that happen right is because uh the research i'm doing currently on neuroblastoma which is a pediatric cancer uh the compound we're looking at it actually has some of these other effects that that kind of help stop some of the um some of these cardiovascular problems right so it can kind of have this dual effect of targeting the cancerous cells and not killing everything else and not killing the regular human cells and also kind of stopping some of these um uh, negative side effects on the heart right so it def- it can have potentially have that potential so what does the word cure mean to you would you even use that word because we tend to steer clear of it oh wow yeah that that word I love that. That word is the ideal. That yeah. is the dream. That is kind of the goal. That's not where we stand currently. Well, what would it mean in a perfect scenario? Like you get can't you never get it in the first place, or you get it in like a quick vaccine and it's gone. Uh, I think either or. Honestly, I'd be excited with either or. Yeah. Realistically, because if you can get a preventative vaccine, that'd be fantastic. Right. Or if you could just go ahead and like like you get antibiotics, of you know, a doctor just like yeah, just swallow a couple of these. 
you're like your tumor will recede and you'll be fine. No side effects, no nothing. You know that'd be fantastic as well. But I mean, they're working on some Star Trek level stuff where you become Wolverine. What? Like it's like Captain America, where they they basically are giving you these super immunity. serum. Yeah, it, 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 it's exactly that. It's it's they they create super serum based on your DNA, mm. and then your body itself gets rid of the cancer cells. It's like a immune system Captain America super serum. Yeah, that's actually pretty... that's the future. That's like five or ten years from now. Yeah, it is, and uh, I think there's like some stuff that's like um, that they use with like engineering T cells, and yeah. there's also re- other research I want to do like genetic engineering. I know it kind of sounds like a little bit dangerous, but it's basically you can knock out certain genes that mm-hmm. that is cancer. So, you know, you can have these over overexpression of these genes that's directly linked with um, like stage four cancer and right. some of these, you know, terrible prognostic uh, indicators. And we can actually potentially, hopefully, fingers crossed in yeah. the future, knock those genes out. So exactly. kind of help on that front. So you attended our New York conference at the end of September. Was that your first cancer yes. event? Absolutely. In 12 years? Yeah, the first time kind of outside of meeting one other person that was in kind of the survivor group uh, at Columbia Presbyterian, that's the first time me ever meeting cancer survivors. You Were you appalled once you realized that? Uh, in what way? Well, that how how dare I go this long without meeting my peers? Oh, no. I, I'm, uh, <laughs> that's a great question, though. But for me, I was just like, uh, and I think that's kind of almost part of the journey of kind of being the survivor in a way is kind of finding your way post-treatment, right? right? Because it might, you know, just being there at, uh, oh my God, East, you see all these different ways that people deal with, you know, being a cancer survivor or going through cancer. For me, necessarily, it was like a, a, ref, a time of reflection and a time of reorientating uh, my life and kind of going after things that I kind of wanted to go after. And then, after a certain time, I guess, elapsed, I was like, you know what? Like, let's go for it. Let's kind of see what else is out there. Versus maybe for other people, it's like I see people, they, like, as soon as they're done, like, with treatment or even when they're on treatment, they go out there seeking other people. They're making right. these amazing support groups, which is it's really stunning, to be honest. So in a sense, we t- you wanted to talk about, how, you know, the phases of cancer. Yeah. And, and what is it like? How did you get by? Yeah. You know, from the age of fourteen to seventeen to newly, and now you're you're twenty six. <laughs> yeah. You know, clearly there you can break that up into lots of different stages. Yeah. But how have you processed what's happened to you and where you are in your own space now? Oh wow! Um, so, a meta question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love those questions. I love when we kind of just get right in there. But uh, I think those kind of three phases that I kind of talk about is kind of like this pre pre treatment. During treatment right. and post-treatment, I think as probably a lot of people would describe. And kind of this pre-treatment is like kind of a collection of before you even knew you were sick versus right. when you just found out when you were sick. So you kind of had these memories of who or what you used to be and what you were able to do and what your life was like. That's kind of all that goes into pre-treatment along with you just hearing about your diagnosis, but before getting any sort of treatment right so you kind of have those things those two things combined and kind of almost mixed together in a way because that's before you know before you've really went through that entire experience of having cancer whether that's surgery radiation uh, chemotherapy right all alternative treatments you know what i mean so it's before you kind of cross that barrier so you kind of have this your lifestyle and then this kind of potential shock of oh my god i got cancer now right and that's at whatever time you're at in your life and then you have how you, you know 
what happens when you're actually going through treatment. So that's how you kind of deal with things in your day-to-day, all these other kind of things that, you know, that pop up, whether that's physically, whether that's, you know, mentally, emotionally, relationships, you know, some people that were in your life, you know, before treatment, they drop out of your life, and then you kind of got to handle that. And um, well, relationships suck when you're well. Yeah, exactly. So they, they suck so, a lot less when you're sick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good litmus test is like seeing who kind of really kind of not only care for you, but kind of sticks around. Yeah, sticks around. And I, when I was at Oh My God East, that was like a repeated theme of that evening right. as I was talking with a lot of other survivors and people going through treatment is you, you find out who who's really there for you. It sifts the flower for sure. Absolutely. You get a finer grind. Of people yeah. who are there for you. Yeah, and it's okay for your kind of your circle to kind of grow small in your circle of trust, your circle of who you're around, right? Because there's some people in some cases, and I've heard this story, and I've heard it kind of happened to me a little bit, is that there's people that you weren't close with at all pre-treatment. All of a sudden, you see them every week. You see them every day, every mm-hmm. other day, and you never knew or you would never expect for that person to, like, you know, spend their time with you, which is the most valuable commodity right. using your time, right? So in terms of, well, first of all, how's your dad doing? My dad's fantastic. He's a hard, incredibly hard worker. Like a hero, a champion, a rock, a absolutely. mentor. Yeah, yeah. All, all of those things. Kudos and, to him. Yeah, absolutely. My father is amazing, really. My, uh, yeah, you were saying, we were talking, like, he was around my age when you were diagnosed, around 40 or yeah, so. Yeah, around, yeah, around My 40. dad was 47 when I was diagnosed. Wow. And the question is, like, where do people like our dads find support? When all they're concerned about is, please save my son, please save my daughter. I don't know. Right. That's that, and that's a fantastic question. I asked myself that before, yeah. and I honestly don't know. I think part of it might just be conviction. Some of it is probably just like, I need to just, you just gotta do be, it. Yeah, exactly. Just kind of got to do it, and just kind of got to be there, and make sure everything goes right. So, before we wrap up the segment, and you're going to stick around because yeah. our, our main segment is has a very similar yeah. uh, uh, story. Um, in, in, in terms of your, your research, mm-hmm. what would you like from a tangible, like a realistic, mm. what would you like to accomplish in the next couple of years with, with research? In the next couple of years, I'd love to get like some results that say this is killing cancer cells or this helps kill cancer cells. And it doesn't necessarily kill, you know, your regular good human cells. That would be like data that I would get that would make me go over the moon and it can actually be used in vivo so or you know clinically inside somebody not just necessarily in a flask or a tube right so the end of napalm yeah 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 absolutely <laughs> something that actually works and can be used i think that would be fantastic well that's amazing jake adson 12 year young adult survivor two times and differentiated uh soft tissue sarcoma mm-hmm. thank you for being here you're sticking around yes. but you do get the applause oh. <laughs> Now it's time for the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Stupid Cancer does a whole lot of awesome things, and here's what's happening now. Meetups. Join us for a different kind of social mixer. No pressure, no judgment, no stigma. Best of all, no sitting around in a circle sharing your feelings. Find a meetup in your area at events.stupidcancer.org or host your own meetup. Just go to stupidcancer.org slash meetup. Okay, we want to see how you get busy living. Please follow Stupid Cancer on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget to tag us at Stupid Cancer. Join the movement. 
Show how you get busy living in your stupid cancer gear. Shop at stupidcancerstore.org. We've been doing the show for more than 10 years now, and we want to hear more from you, our listeners. Please tell us what you'd like to hear on this show. Fill out our survey at stupidcancer.org slash podcast survey and get 15% off the Stupid Cancer Store. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. Okay, in our main segment, Marlo Esch... Since being diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 29, she's been using her personal experiences with cancer to help others at her job as an oncology nurse. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Marlo Ash. Marlo. Hello. I love people that have lots of capital letters after the uh, after the name R N and B S N and O C N. That's, that's- yes. That, that's that's a, my goal. That's my goal. <laughs> you need like an MPH and MBA and PhD and ABC and DEF. You know, it, it goes on, right? Yes, absolutely. I, ca- I can get more too. I, I'll work on that. <laughs> the, the perennial, the perennial student. I love it. Pedagogy for life. <laughs> I'm really excited to have you on the show. It's it's rare, but it exists when an oncology professional that's young gets cancer, and the, yeah, and the, and the story flips a little bit, and. Uh, I, I guess my first question is what drew you because it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's God's work to be an oncology nurse. Yeah. What drew you into you, that profession? You know, I, I kind of just fell into oncology actually. Um, I had a clinical in it in nursing school uh, and an inpatient oncology hematology bone marrow transplant unit. And I was fascinated with, um, the stem cell transplant and bone marrow transplant process. And I just thought, Hey, why not? Let's, let's get into this. So that was my first job. And I just kind of stuck with oncology ever since it's, um, it's a pretty, you know, crazy field. There's a lot going on, a lot going on and a lot of really interesting things. So I had uh, spoken at, um, in San Antonio at their cancer center and they had a panel of survivors there, all of whom were oncologists that worked at the cancer center under the age of 35. Wow, that's awesome. And they had a band. <laughs> the, the, the oncology uh, cancer survivor band? <laughs> yeah, it was like oncology, uh, like clinical oncologists who were young adult survivors that were in a band together. That's awesome. That's Very a niche cool. market. Yeah, quite unique. Absolutely. <laughs> so you're in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My one of my favorite places of childhood is Wisconsin Dells. I went there as a kid all the time oh, on sure. our trips. Oh, sure. Yep. Uh, I have yep. a huge affinity for the state. And uh, did you grow up there? I did. I grew up uh, actually in uh, in the Madison area, a little suburb outside of Madison and Verona. And then um, went to school at UW-Madison for nursing and stayed in the area for about five years before moving to Milwaukee. So let's talk about, all right, so you're just being yourself, good old-fashioned person in their 20s doing their job and living life, and all of a sudden, bam, how did you find yourself in this club that no one really wants to belong to? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, don't, I don't remember the very first time that I felt um, the lump in my breast that turned out to be cancer, but... You know, it was like January or February of 2014, and you know, like a 
good oncology nurse, I ignored it for a while. Um, and went through my head all of the different benign possibilities that it could be, however obscure they were, and tried not to think about it too much. Um, but it was finally my husband who was like, you know, I think it's getting bigger. You really need to go check that out. So I made an appointment. I had to sign up for a primary care provider because I was new to Milwaukee and I didn't have any health care set up. And so I went through that whole process and was hoping to be told that I was being ridiculous and it certainly was not cancer, but, um, after the mammogram and ultrasound and, and the biopsy, it, it I got that news in, in a phone call. So it's pretty surreal. So, which begs the question, you know, you've been on the, the, uh, the giving side of caring for patients with cancer. Yeah. And, you know, getting it at any age is horrible, but getting it younger is different. And yet you had all of this almost like insider information about what is supposed to happen. Right. <laughs> did that stuff that was supposed to happen happen to you or did you have to go, almost go undercover and play the game because you knew where the loopholes were to get through the process? Yeah, I, you know, I, it was, like I said, it was a super surreal experience and I kind of felt like I knew a little too much for my own good. <laughs> um, and I, I just, I had to make sure I was asking the questions that I wanted to know. And my husband was along for the ride. He's, uh, he's an engineer. He's not in the healthcare field. So this was all new to him and, and I wanted him to be able to understand what was going on too. So just, just making sure that things were, were, be, you know, being explained and, and, I was getting my questions answered was really important to me. So I'm glad you mentioned your husband because often the spouse, <laughs> the partner, the caregiver goes, you know, under recognized or unnoticed or is an Island without any direct support. How do you care for the caregiver and right. caregiver burnout and survivor guilt and all these things that are true, especially when, again, you're not like retired in Florida with an 80 year old spouse. Can right. You, you, can you share how much of a rock star he is? He was amazing. I so lucky to have him. Um, one of the struggles I had, especially in the beginning, right when I was diagnosed, was telling other people, telling my family and telling my friends, because I felt like I I was giving this terrible news and then I had to comfort them because they were <laughs> struggling with my terrible news. Um, and it was really stressful and emotionally draining to to have to say, you know, I have cancer, but it's okay. I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. And my husband was the one person I didn't have to do that with. You know, he was the one person that was able to be strong for me when I needed it. So he was uh, he was pretty amazing through through everything. So what was your diagnosis actually? And what kind of treatment did you have? Sure. So I had uh, I was diagnosed with um, invasive uh, ductal carcinoma. It was stage one, luckily, so it had not spread to um, any lymph nodes. Uh, it was grade three. And initially, I was told that I would be able to have a lumpectomy with radiation. Um, and that is what I had planned on doing uh, without any chemotherapy or anything. But I ended up having an, uh, an Onco-DX typing done on my tumor, which is done for women who um, have estrogen and um, progesterone 
receptor positive breast cancers and who are lymph node negative. And it helps providers recommend whether or not chemotherapy um, should be should be given as part of treatment. Um, it's a test that kind of shows the likelihood of recurrence without chemotherapy. So I had that test done and it showed that I had an aggressive tumor um, that was very likely to recur without chemotherapy. So I ended up doing um, about five months of chemo. And during that time I had genetic testing and it turned out that I was positive for uh, the genetic mutation on a BRCA1 gene. So I was kind of told that it would probably be best if I had a double mastectomy. So I ended up having a, a double mastectomy after chemo and um, having reconstruction surgery. So it, it was a long process and a lot of decisions um, that were really stressful to make along the way. Well, I mean... As as horrible as that is, the fact that you're as informed as you were is incredible. We don't often hear almost success stories like that where you're given even the, the, the oh you have genes. What's genomics? Right. In, right. So in in that sense, and you also present with an incredible narrative around how stage one breast cancer is still pretty terrible, and there's nothing. It's not really a contest around what that means, and and stages are relevant to what happens to you personally. Right. Right. I, you know, I struggle every day with, um, with caring for people in my job as an oncology nurse. And I, I do honestly carry a little bit of, of survivor guilt with me for, for only having been diagnosed, uh, stage one sometimes. So, you know, I appreciate you saying that because I think it's, it's totally true. It's not a contest and it's, um, you know, everybody's story is, is their story and, and their struggle. And it's important that we listen to one another and, and support each other. Definitely. I recall back when forums were a big deal a couple of years ago, maybe five or six years ago. And, and no matter what cancer you had, someone was always one upping you because they had one more surgery than you did. Right. And, right. And I, I really tried to do my best to impart. And, and I know we're both associated with the Young Survival Coalition, one of our amazing sister organization partners. Yes. That it's you, you, we're kind of level the playing field, regardless of when or how you were diagnosed, because it's all about what your life experience is. And you know what? Yes, you had a bilateral mastectomy at, you know, 29 years old. That's that's something to, to that kind of screws your life up. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, it's um, it's a game changer, that's for sure, definitely. So I'm reading here that you are very focused on, on obvious things, body image, sexual health, which is something that, you know, is a major issue in women's health and, and all, all cancers. But again, when you're a young adult, it's hard enough when you're well to deal with sexual health and right. in a body image because you're shamed when you're fine. So we talk about, you know, how do you find your community? How do you find the people that won't stigmatize you? And then how do you take that into the way you process your life and impart that to those who you care for? And as an oncology nurse, they're like, I'm glad you talked about this notion of survivor guilt because it really does exist. It really is a real thing. And, yes. and, and especially as a nurse, you're, even immersed more in that than perhaps the average person. 
Yeah, I would, uh, I would definitely, um, agree with, agree with that. I think there's, it's interesting to, to watch people as they go through their experiences and, and their cancer journeys and how they, uh, feel, feel guilty for being diagnosed or for putting their family members through these, these struggles or burdens, you know, feeling like a burden, not feeling like themselves anymore, like they can do what, what they want to do, um, and what they know they have been capable of doing. And it's, um, it's really important to, to be able to, to tell people that it takes time and, it's an experience, you know, it's not, this is not the end of the line. You're going to be going through this, but you're going to be able to look back on it and learn from it. And, you know, having people around you that, that support you, that's really, really important. You can't, you can't carry that guilt around with you. That'll eat you up. Definitely. So we are joined in studio by our survivor spotlight in the segment prior to this, uh, Jay Gadsden, and he wanted to ask you a question. Yeah. Well, sure. This is Jay. Uh, Hi. You... <laughs> it's nice to meet you. Um, yeah, good to meet you as well. During your time as a nurse, did, did you find yourself maybe remembering um, particular patients, maybe something uh, that they said or how they kind of cope with uh, dealing with cancer? Did you find any sort of memories or any people in particular that kind of helped you uh, in your journey now being a patient yourself? Um, I think... Yes, yes, definitely. There were um, there have been uh, a couple, actually, young survivors that I um, had a relationship with um, at my old job at UW Madison, and you know, it's kind of hard. It's hard to to see yourself in other people's shoes, um, especially at the time you're going through treatment. So it. As much as I was surrounded um, by people going through treatment for cancer, I I also felt very lonely. Um, I felt like it was a very very lonely experience. Um, and so now that I'm kind of coming out of that cancer treatment and and being able to put myself back into the work that I do, I'm trying really hard to reach out to uh, to people that I work with to let them know that they're not alone. Does it so. does it come as a surprise, or or how do you, or are you able to? It's a really roundabout question. When you have a patient that you're that you're treating or caring for on your roster, do you disclose to them that you had cancer as well? Is that a a, a comfortable discussion, or is that off limits? It uh, it depends on. I think it depends on the situation I have. I actually, um, through the second half of my chemotherapy treatment, I did work part-time on the infusion um, floor that I work on right now. So I was I was a nurse to cancer patients when I was actively in treatment. So I was wearing my scarves and, and didn't have eyebrows and um, <laughs> struggling a little bit with, with feeling unwell. And I think actually... Honestly, for many for many patients, seeing me was um, was therapeutic and supportive, and you know we could give each other those looks and say, "Hey, doesn't this suck?" Like, <laughs> um, um, so, and then you know I would see those patients 
after I had my hair growing back and, and was feeling better and looking better. And we kind of had that relationship, um, which is really cool. But, um, I will bring it up if I, if I feel like it is something that someone might benefit from. I actually really struggle with this because on one hand, I really want people to know that, that they're not alone and that others have gone through it and they will get through it. But on the other point, I would never, I never want to make somebody's journey or, um, about me. And so I struggle bringing it up kind of like what we talked about before, you know, I'd never want someone to think I'm trying to one up them or say, Hey, this is what I've been through. You know, this, this is nothing, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's on a case by case basis for sure. <laughs> I love that you blog and you write some incredibly compelling pieces. I was reading Thank your poem you. Winter, which you wrote yeah. pretty, pretty much a year ago. And yes. Would it be all right if I read a verse? Oh, absolutely, please. All right. Um maybe uh, you know, Laurel, if I send you this, your voice is so much better than mine, Laurel. I'm gonna um <laughs> slack you this link. And no if you pressure. Could pull eh? this up. Yeah, Laurel is our digital marketing associate. She co-produces the show with Hi, me. Hi, Laurel. She's Hi, also, it's nice to meet you. She's also Canadian, but she speaks much better than I do in terms of prose. And I think she would re read this uh, poem, Winter, uh, the first two stanzas, a Just lot more. That you said she's Canadian, but she does speak better. <laughs> but she's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, you're forgiven for being Canadian, but you yeah. speak really well. All right. Here, oh, this man, is Winter no by Marlo Esch. Thank you for letting me read this. I shaved my head because I did not want to wait for the moment where my absent-minded fingers tucked a lock behind an ear and came back with strands in hand falling to the floor. Now it is October, and I walk in the crisp of each afternoon, noticing that the trees, too, are losing their tresses. Balding branches shiver and bow, dripping golden leaves to the ground. I see myself in these trees, how straight they stand, how bare. Their limbs arc in the sapphire of the sky, stretching toward the warmth of the wilting sun. That's pretty powerful stuff right there. Oh, I have shiver bumps. I would not... <laughs> Thank you. That's amazing. Yeah. What drives your writing? Because you do expressive workshops as well. I do. I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to um, put together and, and facilitate expressive writing workshop where I work. And I feel like I sometimes you want proof of what you've gone through and a way to um, reorganize your, your thoughts and your feelings and figure out a meaning behind what you've, what you've been through. And I think that's what drives my, my writing. I've always been a writer privately journaling and that kind of thing, um, throughout life, but especially through stressful life events. And uh, my cancer diagnosis was certainly no exception to that. Um, but I think being able to, like I said, reorganize your thoughts and, and see the challenges that you've gone through um, and being able to look back and see the growth and uh, what you've learned from your experiences and that kind of thing is, is really powerful. And it's one reason why I, I try and pr promote the idea of expressive writing um, with, with people who are going through cancer. Yeah. Uh, I, I went through kind of a similar experience. Um, post-treatment and uh 
I I play guitar terribly, but I play guitar, and it's uh it's very cathartic, and I I find myself sometimes playing something that maybe I don't express verbally to anybody else, right? And I right. and it's this sort of this almost pow- these sort of like powerful quiet moments in a way where you're kind of yelling and you're screaming and you're crying and you're laughing and you're expressing sort of all these emotions maybe that you don't necessarily express with um with other people just kind of as somebody that's had cancer or going through treatment and you're it is that is that a similar experience for you as well absolutely absolutely i think Um, sometimes you don't know what's going to come out until you write it or, you know, for you until you play it. And, um, I think you, we can surprise ourselves with what we learn about ourselves when we are able to, you know, put into words or, um, put into the creative expression, how we're feeling. And, and even, you know, I think writing expressively or the idea of expressive writing, Uh, personally and on your own is really therapeutic. But I do also think that when you bring it into a group setting and you're able to have your experiences witnessed and affirmed by, by other people who've gone through similar circumstances, that's also a really um, powerful feeling uh, as well. So coming together with other people who've been through uh, what you, what you have as well. I love that you're giving uh, really meaningful speeches uh, at uh, the Oncology Nursing Society and Planned Parenthood and for the Young Survivor Coalition. Um, Yes. So how do you get those gigs besides being awesome? And what does it mean to you to be able to talk (laughs) professionally about what you're talking about from the perspective of someone who's actually been there and is an oncology nurse? I just it's really cool, actually. Put it, I just kind of put myself out there and I think people understand that this, especially the, the topic of uh, sexuality um, during and after cancer is, is a really important topic, but is rarely talked about openly. And I think people realize that and, and are willing to have somebody come in and willing, you know, someone who's willing to talk about those kinds of things openly and honestly. So um, it's really cool. And Connecting, especially at the Young Survival Coalition, I did two different talks. I talked um, on body image, and then I talked specifically on um, intimacy and sex after cancer. And it was really cool uh, speaking with these young women from the, you know, having a, a professional aspect as well, but also saying, you know, I... I had, I did have double mastectomies and that really screwed up my body image and, um, chemotherapy put me in raging menopause at the age of 30 and, and hormone therapy is keeping me there. And it's, you know, so let's talk about this. Let's, let's figure out a way that, that we can kind of get past this together and, and, uh, figure these things out. It's been very cool experience. I wanted to get your take on a research study that we just completed this fall with four academic centers. We surveyed 800 women who were diagnosed with cancer, any cancer, in their fertile years, and we found out that 87% of them were not given informed consent on sterility risk or reproductive preservation options. Wow, that's crazy. Which is horrible because clearly informed consent is not being followed, and we're pursuing a way to make that happen on more of a mandate basis, center to center. But what was would you be willing to share your your experience with fertility? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, that statistic, uh, that is really scary to me. That makes me really sad because I, I am one to say that I think we're doing a better job discussing the fertility aspect of, of sexual health when it comes to cancer and maybe not so much the um, physical functioning or pleasure aspect of, of sexual health, but but hearing that number is is pretty crazy. Um, I was talked about. That was actually brought up in the very first appointment I had with any oncologist ever when I had just received my news. Um, my surgeon, she was like, "You need to." She's like, "Are you thinking about having kids?" Because you need to have uh, fertility uh, preservation if if you're going to go through chemotherapy. So. And that was actually super overwhelming to my husband. He was like, what? Like, <laughs> we, <laughs> I was just told my wife had cancer and you're asking us if what our plans are for, for children. And so right. it was overwhelming, but um, it's an important discussion to have. And I will honestly say it was probably the most stressful of my decisions was whether or not to do fertility testing. Um and I think part of it was because my husband and I didn't know if we wanted children. So how do you make that decision to, to go through that kind of right. medical procedure, uh, the expense of it, the stress of it, and then to say that you have, um, you know, you have these embryos somewhere in Minnesota. Right, <laughs> just floating around. You know, yeah. it's just insane. It was an insane decision, but I, I erred on the side of, you know what, I would rather be able to do this and have this as an option because I don't know how I'm going to feel in, you know, five years, seven years down the road. So, right. My version so, of that story was that my mom drove me to the sperm bank at 21 years old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> a little bit, it's a little bit awkward. There's, yeah. you know, but you know, it's important and it's behind closed doors and yeah. oh, it's it's necessary if if that's something that someone feels like they they might have in their future being able to have children so well i am so proud of what you're doing and how you're taking i hate the expression lemonade from lemons but i can't really think of a better <laughs> euphemism right now and i apologize for that but it's just a great story and that you're so invested in making it suck less for the next you and you're taking, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I congratulate <laughs> you. I don't get out to Madison that often, but I, I have a really good friend out there. So if you guys ever want to do a grand rounds, I'd be happy to come out to Madison and meet you and meet your team and, and talk about this. And we could accelerate some young adult cancer movement. Goodness. Yeah, that would be so great. That is, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for for having me having me on. This has been wonderful. Marlo Esh, R N B S N O C N. Yep. Yep. Can't the forget Froder, that. The Froder. <laughs> am I saying that Fro Froderick? Froderick. Yep. It's like Frodo from Lord of the Rings, but I get it. Frodo Clinical Cancer too. Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, breast cancer survivor, oncology nurse. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us on the stupid cancer show you're welcome it's been great all right take care so jay there you have it there's a young adult oncology professional who was diagnosed with cancer became the other side of the fence person yeah. and is now towing both lines yeah so it how do you feel about being the opposite of that where you are the young adult survivor who is going into oncology um, it honestly, it's a, I see us kind of similar in a way because, uh, 
you both kind of have these in a way a dual sort of uh a dual sort of experience because we've been there but also at the same time we're kind of helping the people that's going through it or who are going to be there potentially so yeah. it almost makes you have the sort of unique look of kind of 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 both sides of the uh of the coin well that's the thing the both sides of the, of the coin is you know you're helping people like you like i said you're trying to make it suck less for the next year yeah. but it's got to be a trigger to manage your survivorship mentally physically emotionally that you've been through this and you're watching other people. So it's, it's incredibly noble. And I really admire that you're choosing to do this. It's a really big deal. I think especially uh, Marlo, I mean, that's, 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 she's amazing. She's wonderful. I I can't, I, I'm trying to like imagine, like trying to like uh, put it back together in my head, how you can be a patient. I know. And you're helping other people just like, I'm, I can't even imagine. She was on a a practicing oncology nurse in treatment. Yes. Treating patients yes. with cancer in treatment. Yeah. Like you just go gobble the yolk. And then teaching them a creative writing class too yeah. to help them not just physically, but also with the emotional part and the mental part. It's like so a she cancer wormhole. Yeah, absolutely. She was, <laughs> she was helping them on all fronts. Amazing. Amazing stuff. Well, uh, that about is the end of our show. Jay, thank you for being here in studio. Yeah, I had a wonderful time. We got uh, Friends for Life here in the Stupid Cancer <laughs> Universe here. Yeah. Uh, so with that, it is now time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, my goo. You've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. That's our show. The 401st episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Or follow us on SoundCloud. I'd like to thank our guest, Jay Gadsden and... Marlo Esch. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer. Find us online at stupidcancer.org. Coming to you from downtown Manhattan, on behalf of the team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, we hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you back here on the next exciting episode of the Stupid Cancer Show. Goodbye, folks. Because cancer affects everyone, whatever the age. Now imagine you're 25, diagnosed when you're engaged. Imagine having it in college with so much on your plate.